Our new verse for the month, as Bill is sharing, is Philippians 2, 8. Uh, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if you're familiar with our verse for this month, and we got one last Sunday, one last day in the month of March, you find out, you'll find that Philippians 2.8 is a little bit longer than Philippians, I mean, Philippians 2.8 is a little bit longer than Philippians 1.21. And if you've been with us for any length of time, hopefully you've all got Philippians 1.21 down. Uh, for, to me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die, to die is gain. Let's say that together. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. One more time. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And we think about that, that's a, that's a pretty powerful little passage in God's Word because it really speaks about what we're all about, and it really gets personal. Don't you kind of hate it when God gets personal with you? You know, it's like, who are you talking? Are you talking to me? And, and that verse says that, for to me. And well, what, what is it to me? Uh, to live is Christ. And that's a pretty straightforward statement, and if you want to put in a question form, is that true? Is it true that for me, what my life is all about, honoring and pleasing Christ and living in in obedience to his word and and drawing people to himself and and honoring him by attitude and action? For to me, what living is all about is to live for Christ. In fact, it's so much so that I'm not worried about what happens at the end of my life because at the end of my life, to die is is to gain. And so as we move out of that passage uh, this month, uh, you can still remember it, all right? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And as I was thinking about that, that that's really what uh, a church should be, all be all, should be all about, looking to honor Christ. And as we uh, have been in a series in the book of, of Titus, and Lord willing, next Sunday we'll get out, of, we'll finish our series in the book of Titus, uh, but we've been looking at a template for the church. Now, what, what is the blueprint? What is the pattern? And, and in, in these three chapters, we, we see it unfolded in at least big pieces this way, that God wants us to get it right in the church. And it gets right by beginning by getting leadership right. But as we think about what leadership is to do, it's to impact uh, people. And so as you get leadership right, then you're, get, you're to get God's people right in the church. But if you've ever figured this out, the church should not remain within the confines of a building. We leave this place to be in the community, and so then we need to get it right by getting God's people right in the community. And we talked about that this last week. And as we think about it, God wants to use all of us, and quite frankly, none of us are, are uh, irreplaceable. I don't know if you figured that out, but you know, as I, the older I get, have you noticed that you're getting older? Anybody figure that out? You're getting older? You know, we're, we're not, uh, if, if Jesus does not come soon, you know, even, even without that, except for Meredith, she's the young person in our service today. But as, as we think about that, is that we're, we're going to be replaced by somebody else. Whatever we're doing now, somebody else is going to start doing it. And, and, and that can happen here. You know, I'm going to be replaced. And normally I'm thinking about, uh, you know, the person that whoever replaces me is going to be so much better than me. But my, uh, my neighbor put this in my mailbox on Saturday. I don't know if he was trying to make a point here. But the, it was from the Wall Street Journal, and this is what the headline said, Do Robots Have a Place in Religion? And um, Gabriel Travato, uh, who uh, works for an uh, a industry in Japan, has put together a 17-inch uh, robot uh, that speaks and spews out Bible verses. And so it's quite frankly, I was thinking, what might replace me? 
Well, it, this is not quite 17 inches, but th- there, might be, there might be a talking head in, in, in your future, all right? There might be somebody that might just say, hey, we'll, just, we'll get some uh, robot to, to speak the Word of God to, to people on Sunday. And they've actually named this little robot. It's called Bless You Too. And so uh, they had 10,000. I didn't show this detail. They had 10,000 people see it in one particular setting, this robot. And, and then they did a exit interview. And they said, well, what did you think about this robot that was sharing verses? In fact, one of the verses was, uh, that was shared out was um, Matthew 6, 34, I believe it is. They didn't get the reference, but it's, it's the verse right after... Uh, you know, Jesus says, seek him first. And then it says, oh, by the way, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And, and, and the robot that might replace me just added a worry for myself. You know, I might be replaced by some object. Uh, but anyway, it was 10,000 people, and it was kind of split down the middle. 50% people liked the robot, and the other 50% would rather have a person speaking to them. Now, I, I don't know really what you would think, but uh, the reality is I, I don't think that God is going to replace us by robots. Because as you think about when God sent a message to us, he, did, he, 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 he brought it in person, didn't he? I mean, he could have painted it on the sky. God could do anything. He could have uh, presented the entire scripture written out for us to look up and see it in the heavens. But what he did is he, he, he influenced, inspired men to write down his message to all of God's people. But when he particularly wanted to make sure the message was clear, he didn't send a text, he didn't send an email, he didn't go by snail mail, he sent a person, didn't he? He sent, he sent Jesus. And even as we think about the, 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 the things that influence us in the greatest way in this life are not objects, they're people. And as we think about what God has been impressing on our hearts, as we think about what does it mean to get it right in the community is that God has called us as his people to, to fill, fulfill a few roles. When he calls us into his family, he calls us to be members of his family, to be, be part of that which represents Jesus Christ. If, if Jesus was here the first time, when he was here the first time, he was the body of Christ number one. But when he left, we're the body of Christ number two. We are the hands and feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus. So we are members of God's family. But as we think about that, he also has given us things to do, and so we're to be ministers in God's family. We are to serve each other and display the love of Christ in tangible ways to people around us. But there's another role he has called us all to be, and that's missionaries in God's community. And, and, and all that we see, it, th- th- this, is, this is the world that God has created, and he has populated this planet, and he wants his people to represent him and to represent him well. And so last week, we looked at what Paul said about that, and he, he reminded them. And so since he reminded them, I'm going to remind you what I said last week. What he said to them is, is you need to understand that as, as you live it, as you understand your role to be a missionary, to represent me, it begins with your lifestyle. And so he gave very specific instructions. If, if people are going to believe in your Redeemer, they want to see your redeemed life. If they're going to believe that, that God can save you, then he wants to see how your life has been saved. If God can make you a new creature, I want you to live in a new way. And so he, he gave specific statements and said, this is how I want you to treat people. And in fact, we kind of summarize that whole passage is, is we need to not forget, or if you want to put it in the positive, we need to remember, always in the present tense, keep on remembering, that every person you meet, you ought to treat them like you want them to go where? To heaven. 
And if you reminded yourself that way, it would, it would, it would change how we treated people, right? We, we, would, uh, we would watch what came out of our mouth. We would be, check our attitude. We might say, well, maybe I would extend myself in a, a much more demonstrative way to show that I really care about them. And so we need to treat people like we want them to go to heaven. I was, I was, my wife uh, will occasionally re, uh, critique my messages after Sunday or say something about them. And, and, and so, uh, you know, the, the obvious is the struggle there is that for some of us, there's some people we're not sure we want to go to heaven. And my wife, much more spiritual than me. And there, there are some people that I've often thought, I'm not sure I want them there, you know. But she said, no, no, I want everybody to go to heaven. I just don't want to meet them when I'm up there. <laughs> you know, and that's how we somehow, it's a big place. Maybe I won't have to spend any time with them. But the reality, if, if God could save us, maybe he could save them. And he could change their life as well. And so we, we are called to treat people like we want them to go to heaven. And that will change how we live. But the more sobering thing about the message last week in terms of taking a look at how we ought to represent him well in the community with people, he says, let's be honest. There are people in the past, and if we were a little bit more humble, we'd say even now, they look at our lives and they're not sure we're going to heaven, right? Because look at, they look at our lives and say, well, I can see some things in your life that haven't quite changed enough to represent the, the one who is who is the Redeemer, the Savior, the, the changer of lives. And he gave a pretty sobering list there. He said, for, for also, we also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life on mal, in malice and envy, hating and hating one another. What kind of a list is that? Well, it's a list of where we were, and let's be honest, sometimes we're still there, right? There are times we, we act very foolishly. Sometimes we are deceived. Sometimes we look at others and we don't love them. We, just, we don't like to use the word hate. We just dis, dislike them a lot, right? And, and God says that you should be far from that. Well, what I want to look at today, and, and this is what I've used as a, as a message title, is that if we're really going to be good missionaries, we, we better make sure we know the message, right? And so we want to get the gospel right. What is the gospel? And in case I have to speak faster than I'm already speaking, let me just put you the, the two main points that in between there are seven main, seven main points. It, it's really, as you think about the gospel, you need to, first of all, the gospel essentially is the work of God. It's not something that we do. It's something God has done and continues to do in terms of rescuing people. It's, it's, a, it's a work of God. It's not a work of, of us getting people saved. We can't save anybody. Only God saves people. And we're going to look at that and re-looking at a passage we went through briefly last week. And then we're going to look at only really one new verse out of Titus, but we'll, we'll throw in a few other things for free this morning. Is that there is the work of God, but there, there is the response of man, our response to God's work. And, and so what I want to do is just look at the passage that really speaks about God's work. And as one uh, author said, as you look at Titus 3, 4 through 7, what you'll see is, is that uh, we aren't participants, we're spectators. Um, if you're, uh, even if you're not, I found, even if you're not a sports fan, a lot of people are aware of a particular sport that's going on right now. In fact, they've got a name for it. It's called March Madness, all right? March Madness seems like everybody, I, I know people who, I don't actually do that, even though I'm a basketball fanatic. They got, you know, they got their bracket all filled out, who they think are going to win, and, and, they're all, and they're just excited about seeing what will happen this one-and-done type of event. 
but if you notice that in March Madness, you, you only have, counting both teams, you only have 10 people playing the game. The millions of Americans are simply what? They're just watching. They're not participants. They're just, they're just watching the activity. But now, uh, let me test you know, your sports um, uh, awareness. Okay, March Madness, which is basketball, there's another sport that just started, and it's called what? Baseball. And the reason I want to talk about baseball is because, again, I want you to understand how much of this is a work of God, but we'll see it in the passage, then I'll illustrate it that way. Mark chapter 3, I mean, Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, which is simply as we think about God starting this work, it all started, or at least in its completion, is when God showed up, right? He didn't send an email, didn't send a text. He showed up, in, in, as, even as Philippians 2.8 says, by being uh, found in appearance as a man. He was more than a man, but he was fully man. So God showed up to start this whole salvation act. And then he says, oh, by the way, he saved us. Now, I didn't particularly like grammar when I was growing up and going through the um, junior high years and high school years, but grammar can be helpful for us in understanding when people communicate. And, and in the Greek language, it is particularly uh, precise. And he saved us, which is talking about God saving us. It's in a form in which it's called the passive form in contrast to the active form or the active voice. Now, we're not going to make this a grammar class, so just relax, but I want to make out a simple point. When you think about something being active and passive, you can think about the base, uh, a baseball game. Basically, the, the game all revolves uh, primarily around the one pitching the ball and one hitting the ball, right? And, and when the pitcher throws the ball, the batter is trying to hit that ball, hopefully safely, to get on base. And when he does that, he is actively trying to hit the ball. And you can get on base if you hit it well enough to get into the field or hit it over the fence, and then you can just w- w- run around or walk around the bases. But there's another way you can get on base. The other way you can get on base is when you're up to bat and the, and the pitch is thrown. Instead of you hitting the ball, the ball what? Hits you. When the ball hits you, you have acted passively. You, you, didn't, you didn't want the ball to hit you uh, because it was going to hurt you, but because the pitch went astray or the, the pitcher somehow wanted to send a message to the next batter coming up, you better not dig in. He throws the ball at you and the pitcher pitched it. It was his act that got you in that pro- close proximity where it brought pain to your body because it hits you. And, and what is here is he, he says he saved up. We didn't do anything. He did everything. We act passively from the standpoint he had to do everything for us to be saved. And then it goes on in the text and says, well, what, what, what couldn't we do? He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Now, that's a fancy way to say what most people try to do in the reality. What they do not understand is no matter how hard you try and how well you do compared to someone else, you're all going to fall short. Because the the message of the gospel, God's work, no matter how many righteous deeds you do, no matter how many good things you do, you're not going to do enough good things to measure up to God's standard. I was reading another author this week. In fact, uh, Gerald Tilley, some of you have heard him speak, uh, some of the men at Men's Breakfast. 
and he, he wrote on this, he said, which was interesting. He says, not only can you not do enough good deeds to measure up, you can't avoid enough evil to measure up, which I thought was kind of an interesting spin on this particular passage. And it really came home to me because I was in a conversation with one of my neighbors this week. It was on Friday, and, and as we, we just, God just led the conversation a certain way, and we got involved in talking about Jesus and what it's all about and heaven and hell and all those kind of things. And, and, and he, he made this comment. He said, well, you know, there, there are certain people in history that we, we know are, are going to hell and are in hell. And he says, you know, like Hitler and Stalin. Now, we know they're in hell. And then he said this, are, are there anybody else that we might know might be going there? And I thought, I know where he's coming from. I said, well, you know, it, it, it's interesting. If, and I just said, you know, if you take what Jesus said, or, or actually uh, the Old Testament as well, is that no one deserves going to heaven. We all deserve going to hell. And he thought, well, wait a minute. I haven't, I haven't committed murder. I haven't, I haven't committed any of these heinous sins. I said, well, you know, Jesus had an interesting thing to say about that. He said, you know, if you harbor something in your heart so strongly about somebody else, calling them a fool, raka, if if you so demean someone in a hateful way, what you've actually done with that person is commit what? Murder. And then speaking to the the men, he said, well, you know, if if somehow you have this lust in your heart for another woman that's, that's not your wife... You know, what you actually have done is you've committed what? Adultery. Oh, and then on the good side, you know, if you, if you think about it, in fact, we talked about this too. So I asked him, I said, what do you think is the greatest commandment in all of the Bible? And he goes, I don't know. What, um, what, what, what does it make you sure you better not do or you better do? And it was, well, you shouldn't commit murder. And then he went through the whole list. Well, you probably shouldn't lie. You probably shouldn't commit adultery. You probably shouldn't envy what somebody else has. And he went all through that list. I said, nope, 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 nope. You know what Jesus said? In fact, actually, a lawyer with him said it. He said, you know, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he add to it, and, and to love your neighbors yourself as well. How, how many people on this planet do you think loves God with all that they are? Have I and I've always done that. And you know what he said? No one. No one has lived all their life loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Anybody else want to raise their hand? You've you've always done that? Okay. None of us have. So what we have done, we've all broken the greatest commandment that's in the Bible. And it began in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6. So as we stand before a holy God, we're murderers and adulterers and We've broken God's greatest commandment many, 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 many times. And so as we think about salvation, salvation is something only God can do. And we can't do good enough, and we cannot remove ourselves from as much evil as we, as we so passionately desire for us to somehow meet up his standard. He goes on here. It says he saved us not according to our deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. You know, the difference between grace and mercy, grace is, is getting what we don't deserve, which is God's love and his forgiveness. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. We deserve God's judgment and condemnation. So what's the only, what's the only hope? Paul writes to Titus, who speaks to the Christians in the land of Crete, 
He said, it, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Basically, what he says is, what, what, we, what we all need to do, we all need to take a bath. I thought we'd take an informal sermon. How many took a shower or a bath before you can change? No, we won't do that. You know, we, we probably regularly take baths or showers or whatever it might be, sometime during, at least on Saturday night, right? Remember the Saturday night bath? Okay. It, it is what he's saying here spiritually, you're not physically dirty, but you're spiritually dirty. He's not talking about a little bit of sprinkling here. The Latron is, is it's, a, it's a full body bathing because you're dirty from head to toe. Regeneration is a, the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit is the new birth. And that can only be done by God. And specifically, he says, by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, you have all three persons of the Trinity in Titus 3, 4 through 7. And you see that right next, in the next phrase, where he says, whom he, which would be God the Father, poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus as Savior. So you have God the Father sending Jesus, who dies on the cross for our sins, and it's the Holy Spirit who, who bathes us and cleanses us from the inside out and renews us. The Bible says, therefore, if any was in Christ, he is a what kind of creature? A new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, now I hope in the midst of this, and he goes on and says, so that being justified by his grace, we have been made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That we desperately need to understand that the, the gospel is something that has to be done to us. We, we cannot manufacture it on our own efforts. It's passive. It's something that God does to us. Now, we're going to talk about the response of man that we are called to make, but we need to understand it's, a, it's only a miraculous work of God that ever could bring us into his presence. We are dead in the trespasses of our sin. Now, most of us don't spend a lot of time in church history, even recent church history, but there was a man named Diedrich Bonhoeffer who was a pastor in Germany during the Holocaust. And he's he's probably best known because in the midst of seeing his people who were a Christian nation, that that was their predominant religion faith, and and they had, in the millions, had professed faith, but what they had done is they'd taken God's grace and made it cheap, and they believed in easy believism, and somehow if if they just made a nod to God, that means they were going to get into heaven. And, and, And he pleaded with people about the cost of discipleship. Grace is a gift, but it costs Jesus everything. And then when Jesus called people to himself, he, he told them to, to leave whatever they had to follow him. And that didn't always mean location or even jobs, but it meant now you are changing who, who is leading your life. And what they've done is they're looking at the gospel. They said that you know, there are layers of the gospel that had the foundation. The gospel is as simple as John three sixteen: for God so loved the world. It's God's love that brings it all to pass. That he gave his only begotten son. And why did he give? Because we were in a desperate state. We were dead in our sin. We were guilty because of our sin. And Jesus was given by the Father to come here on earth. He came to die so that the reality of our sin could be forgiven because he would pay the penalty for our sins. And then our response is that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
So it is as simple as, as believing what, what God and God alone can do for us. But as we think of how simple that is, we, we should not miss the depths of what that is. If not, that what we'll have is a profession of faith rather than a true faith. And so what I want to do rather rapidly this morning is I want to, I want to look at seven layers of the gospel. And first of all, we want to start where it should begin with what God does, the work of God. Uh, number one, how could we understand Titus 3, 4 through 7 in, in, in another way? What, what is the work of God? It is the invitation, number one, to live under the rule, kingdom of God. And, and the reason we would say that is when Jesus started his ministry, you know, he didn't start by saying the ABCs and we're going to end that way, but, but he started with essentially what is happening when you put your faith in him. Matthew 4, chapter 4, verse 17, which is immediately right after Jesus was, was baptized and his public ministry started. This is how he began his ministry. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So as we think essentially, what does it mean to believe in or trust in Jesus? It, it is understand that we were going down one path, and now we need to make a 180-degree turn and go down another path. We, we were trusting in ourselves to be good enough to get to heaven, and now we realize that will never work. we got to turn around and believe that only Jesus as Savior can make us good enough to get to heaven. And to be honest about that is that we're saying, look, I am no longer going to go in the direction of that which I know is wrong, sinful, disobedient to God's word. And I'm going to ask God to say, I want to change from that. And I want to go down your path. And essentially what happens when you do that, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Every kind of kingdom must have a what? A king, right? And it's saying, look, at repent. And now understand that you're under my rule, not your own rule. If, if you were to paint in your heart or in your life a throne, basically there are only two S's that can be on the throne there. S standing for self or S standing for the Savior. And, and you need to put Jesus on the throne. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Th- this kingdom idea, which is really the rule of God in our lives... And there are many facets of the kingdom, but simply it means the rule. It was the message of Jesus when he began his ministry. That's what he said. He began to preach. And what did he preach? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He ended it that way, at least on his first coming to the earth. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it said that, that for 40 days he gave convincing proofs of, of his resurrection. And he went on preaching about the kingdom of God. So it's an invitation to be under the rule of the kingdom of God. Secondly, it's the conviction that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And hopefully you see within this, it makes so, so much sense. Why, why would you put yourself in submission to someone who says, I want you to do everything I tell you to do, and even the Great Commission says that, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, even to the end of the age. Why would you believe that? Because the person, you'd have to be convinced, the person who is telling you to be under his rule has the right to say that. And who is Jesus? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so you've got to be convinced that Jesus is God. Matthew 3, 16, 16, 17, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. You're not smart enough to figure this out on your own, but God has revealed that to you. But then you might be thinking, well, okay, he's the Son of God. And often, people of all ages, really, it's not just children, when I have taught, taught with them or spoken with them, well, does that mean somehow Jesus is a little God compared to the big God? You know, you had the Father, now you have the Son of God. Is he somehow less than than God? Well, in the Jewish culture, you know, the Son of God meant you are of equal value of the one you're connected to. Uh, If it was the son of Joseph, you'd be as equal to your father in terms of you, you were birthed out of him. You had the same essence of your earthly father. Well, his his true father was the eternal father. And so you say you are you are of equal value of the Son of God. But in case that doesn't make sense, it's, it's that Christmas verse that is so clear in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child will be born, a son will be given. Remember that? Everybody remember Christmas? You ever heard that verse? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't have a period there. It goes on and said, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. And you say, well, that's, that's a pretty good description. He, he has good things to say. He can help people out. But it doesn't end there either. It's not a period there. It's a comment. And it said, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And so, again, as we go through this foundational things about the gospel, and you don't go through all this detail every time you talk to people about Jesus, but, but you need to believe it and you need to understand it, that Jesus is God. He said, I and the Father are what? One. Because he, uh, and they knew what he meant by that because they picked up stones to kill him. Because he, being a man, made himself out to be equal with God. And so what is the gospel? It's an invitation to live under the kingdom rule of God. And some people put it this way. It's, it's exchanging our life into his life. When we become a Christian, we invite Jesus into our life, but we invite our life into his life. Does that make sense? It's a conviction that Christ is the Son of God. Thirdly, it's trusting that Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. He did something. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 3 says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. So if I'm going to talk about getting the gospel right, I better go to a passage that has the gospel in it, right? So here's the gospel. The gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which you stand. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. And what is it? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says that he died for all the just, for the unjust, in order, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It is that Jesus came for a purpose. He came for the purpose to pay the penalty for our sins. But then again, if you're thinking this truth, well, why would I believe that his death was any more important than anybody else's death? There have been a lot of people that have given their life over to, to save people in their in their sphere of relationship. It might have been on the battlefield. It might have been in a home situation, safety issue. But it's much more than that, what Jesus did. Because there's a necessity that Christ rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, and then he was buried, and then he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Because people have given their lives to save people physically, but when they do that, three days later, they, they don't rise from the dead on their own. And that, again, establishes that why do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God? 
Why do we believe that Jesus' death was significant more than any death in, in the history of mankind? Because it was God who died, but he rose from the dead. So that's the essence of the gospel. That's what God has done. But what are we to do? And in Philippians, in Titus, Philippians excuse me, Titus 3.8, it implies that. It says this. This is a trustworthy statement. Back to the template for the church in Titus. This is a trustworthy statement, which is always interesting to me when the Bible says that. You know, like I, I tell you all the time, when, when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, I'm always thinking, what, what does that mean? Does that mean before it wasn't true? <laughs> no, it means this is, I'm going to say to you something that's hard to believe it's true. It's too good to be true. Now, this is a trustworthy statement. Why is he saying that? Are you saying the other statements weren't trustworthy? No, everything was trustworthy, but this is going to be almost hard to believe. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. I want you to trust this so much because it's trustworthy that you're willing to share it to somebody else. I want to speak to you confidently, you to speak confidently, that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Now, that's Paul just kind of being comfortable say, look, at how do you get in on this on your end? You must believe. And you must believe to a certain at that level where you fully trust that your life changes because you're opening up your life for God to rule in your life, and you'll now be dedicated and committed to doing that which is good that God has called you to live out. Well, how does that happen? And we've shared this before, but let me, uh, let me, let me put it again. What, what is the response? Well, you can say very simply, our response is to believe. But what does that mean? What it means is as simple as ABC, but I think all are essential here. What, what does it mean to believe? It means to admit Admit that you have a desperate need and, and then be willing to repent and turn from your sin. Uh, too often people will, will think that, well, somehow I, I pray a little prayer or I, I walk forward or make a nod to God. Well, now I'm in. G- Jesus had many people come to him and they went away sad when he, when he told them this is a commitment of life. And so we desperately need to understand that our sin keeps us out of heaven, keeps us out of a relationship with God, and we must turn from that. The Bible says this is all-inclusive, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it doesn't just stop there when you admit, I need something. Then what are you going to do with that need? Well, you need to believe. I must believe, and if you want a different word than that, trust, that Jesus is God and paid the penalty for my sin rising from the dead. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it comes to that point in your life where you say, well, what is it I'm believing? I'm believing in who Jesus is, but also in what he has done. That who's, who's going who's gonna to pay my debt? Who, who's going to clean up my mess? There's only one person deserving to do that. That's God himself. And he did it by taking our just penalty upon his own life when he died on the cross for our sins. Well, is there anything else? Well, as we admit and believe, and it's all almost together, we come to that place in our life where we say, I'm, I'm, I'm crossing the line. I'm committing my life. I'm committing my life to follow Jesus as Lord, God, and Savior. 
Romans 10, 9 puts it this way, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, we don't, we don't really call people Lord very often in our culture today, do we? I mean, there, there isn't Lord of this land and Lord of that land. It's come to the point where you, you confess that Jesus is the one who has just right to be called the leader of your life, to be sovereign over how you decide what you're going to do with your life, to give you the marching orders of, of what he wants you to do and what you, he wants you to be. And you're convinced that, that you ought to make him Lord because he was the only one who, who rose from the dead by the power of his own hand and the power of the hand of the Father and the, and the, and the Spirit. Jesus rose people from the dead, but the, the unique thing about Jesus is every person that Jesus rose from the dead, later on they what? They died. Jesus never went back to the grave and died. And so what, is it, what does it really mean to understand the gospel? To understand the gospel is to understand that it, it's a work of God. It's, it's something he only does, but there is a response of man. And that's admit our need and turn from our sin. Believe that Jesus is God and died on the cross for our sins and rose again. And then make that commitment to follow him as Lord, God, and Savior. In Matthew 4, 19 and 20, we, we have Jesus as he begins his ministry, speaking about the rule of God, the kingdom of God, and calling people to repent and turn to him, putting their trust in him. He then goes to these fishermen. He calls out to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And now this crew, as they heard that challenge, they, they, they immediately left their nets and followed him. So as you get, even as you think about what, is, what does it mean to really believe, to really believe is to follow is to say, as he goes, I want to go. As he tells me how to live, that's how I want to live. As he tells me what's really important, I want to put that on my value list. To say, I want to live a life that is honoring the one who came and rescued me from not only the penalty of my sin, but even the power of my sin to live a life that can please him. So what's the so what this morning? The so what this morning is, is pretty simple. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that, that the invitation is for you to acknowledge that Jesus is calling you to have him rule in your life? Have you come to that point in your life where you understand that you have a conviction that Jesus is God, fully God? Have you come to that point in your life where you are, are really convinced of the truth that, that Jesus paid the penalty for his sins and, and the necessity rose from the, from the grave? But it's one thing to, to understand all that, but then it comes to that point where you say, are, are, are you willing to respond? Have you admitted your need and turned from your sin? Have you believed that which you know to be true, which means trust in? Have you come to that point where you've committed, committed to follow Jesus, Lord God and Savior? That's what God is calling out for people to believe about the gospel and then respond to the gospel. But as we think about being members of God's family, if you've made that step, it's not only to believe the gospel, but do you want others to believe it too? And, and that's why we're calling all of us who know him to, to say, well, how, how can I do that? I, I'm an introvert. I'm not an extrovert. Well, he wants all of us to, to pray for people. Pray for people locally that don't know Christ. They say, how, how can I be an influence in their lives? 
And trust me, if you'll just begin praying for people, and if you don't know them by name, just pray, pray for them by description. That's the third house down that I want to I pray for them. They might know Jesus. It's that person that's at work, or it's that person that I do other things with. I, I'm praying for them, and, and let God open them doors to express that faith to them, or to give them an invitation, or to hand them something to read. But it all begins with praying. We can all do that. But we have to be committed to praying for people that don't know the Lord and say, God, I want to be used of you to be a fisher of men. Let's pray together. Father, I would pray for each one here that that they have made that response. They've admitted their need and turned from their sin. They've believed, trusted in Jesus as their God who paid the penalty for their sins. But they've made that commitment to follow you. And then, Father, I would pray for all of us that we might be identifying people that that we know, uh, not to make ourselves better than them, but to simply say, I want what's best for them, which is being rescued from their sin. Help us, even this week, to begin praying for people in in, in our community that we're not sure know you. And we're going to pray that that, that you might speak into their heart. And if you want to use us beyond that, we're, we're available. But we're praying for lost people to be found. Help us to be the people you want us to be as your members and ministers and missionaries for the sake of Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.